This is Hotspots H2O from Circle of Blue's award-winning team of journalists, where each week we examine regions, populations, and countries that are at most risk from water-related stresses. I'm J. Carl Ganter. In this special year-end roundtable, we gathered Circle of Blue reporters to discuss the big stories of 2016. With stories from around the world, we're revealing the greatest and emerging challenges and solutions in the face of the fast-growing competition between water, food, and energy in a changing climate. Today, we're joined by Keith Schneider, Senior Editor and Chief Correspondent at Circle of Blue, and Brett Walton. He's editor of the Federal Water Tap, our weekly digest of U.S. government water news, and Cody Kozicek, editor of The Stream, which is Circle of Blue's daily digest of international water news trends. In 2016, Circle of Blue's U.S. coverage closely followed the developments out of Flint, Michigan, as the city continued to struggle with lead contamination in its drinking water. And we covered the ongoing controversy over the Dakota Access Pipeline. Around the world, we reported stories on water conflict, infrastructure spending, stranded assets, and severe droughts brought on by El Nino in Africa, the Middle East, and Asia. We joined Keith and our team to discuss some of these stories and a look into the crystal ball for what might happen in 2017. This is Keith Snyder. I'm joined with Brett Walton, Cody Kozacek, uh, for, for a conversation, a year in conversation to look at what we saw in 2016 and what we're anticipating in 2017 and um, looking at this globally and looking at this nationally. So maybe we'll start with Brett. What, what, do you anticip- what did you see in 2016, Brett, and what are you looking for? Well, there are a couple events in 2016 that kind of brought longstanding trends in water uh, in the U.S. to the forefront, um, one of which was the, the water crisis in Flint, which magnified the nation's inability to be able to maintain and repair infrastructure systems that were put in place 50, 70, 100 years ago. And that lead pipe crisis in Flint has revealed all sorts of old and aging systems across the U.S. That story has local, state, national implications. Uh, the local and, and state implications are still working their way through courts. Uh, but nationally, it, it forced the EPA to take a look again at what its drinking water policies are and should be and how to get safe, clean water to all Americans. As right now, according to EPA data, there's about 9% of U.S. households are served by a water system that's violating at least one federal drinking water rule. And EPA came out earlier this month with a new strategy to try and rectify that and to get clean water to everybody. Uh, How that plays out will be a big story in 2017 and going forward. That infrastructure issue is something that's always been on the radar, but really blew up this year due to Flint. Uh, Related to that, uh, I think, is water affordability, which is another issue that's kind of bubbled below the surface, but came to the forefront this year. Uh, We have a divergence in economic uh, incomes and household incomes in the country between the, the high and the low. Usually in the country, we have been subsidizing a system. So you'll have federal grants or loans given to a water utility to help build infrastructure. Uh, but now utilities are having to reinvent or rethink their mission and subsidizing at the household level. It's something they've never really had to do before because you're seeing people at the lowest end of uh, you know, below poverty uh, struggling to pay all the bills that have accumulated. So that would be water and energy and food and, and housing and medical. All that's kind of piled on to the point where uh, water bills for some are becoming unaffordable. That you know, happened in Flint. It's happened in a lot of cities with aging infrastructure in the Midwest and Northeast that have 
hundreds of millions or billions of dollars of repairs to do. You have the coalition now for water affordability that's really emerged in the U.S. I can talk a bit later about some of the others, but I want to move ahead to, to somebody else right now. Well, that's good. But before we do that, Brett, just tell us one thing. The other thing that you were writing about this year is how you're seeing collaborative efforts for solutions. And you reported on that in several parts of the country. Can you give us a little flavor of, of what you saw there and what you're anticipating in 2017? Right. One of the big tensions for water nationally and internationally, too, is this conflict collaboration aspect. And we reported a lot on, on the conflict, and we have a podcast series now about the hotspots around water conflict. And that's happening in the U.S. We have legal conflicts are usually how they emerge here. And there are lots of, of stories and lots of instances of legal battles to water. We have in the Supreme Court, Florida and Georgia at loggerheads over a, a shared water system. We have Mississippi suing Tennessee over groundwater uh, withdrawals. Virginia and Maryland were talking about Potomac River. But for collaboration, a lot of it has happened in the West where there's longstanding relationships uh, over water. Uh, Colorado River Basin, uh, they've really come to terms that they have to do something about uh, Lake Mead and about water withdrawals in the lower basin. Other solutions, we see uh, Idaho, uh, there are groundwater users there who are using so much groundwater is affecting irrigators that draw from rivers. And they reached an agreement uh, last year and then are implementing it now about cutting their use of groundwater by 10 to 13 percent. Thank you so much. Cody, an interesting year this year. What were you looking at? What were you looking at this year and what do you see for 2017? So last year about this time, we started looking at the civil war in Syria because that had really brought attention to the role of droughts and other water pressures in either kind of sparking uh, violent conflicts or creating humanitarian crises. And that was a big question that we started to ask uh, this year was can drought or some other sort of water issue supply tension to, to either exacerbate confrontations or to create humanitarian crises. And that was a major theme that we were looking at this year. Basically, what we found is that uh, on its own, water does not generally drive conflicts. I know in the past, there's been a lot of research done on the fact that actually water scarcity can drive cooperation more so than conflict. But we, what we did find was that water certainly can can and does pull back the curtain, so to speak, on weak economies or poor governance. And so it can basically make bad situations worse. In military terms, they call it this uh, threat multiplier. So basically, if you have poor governance, if you have a weak economy, having a drought or a natural disaster, like a major flood or something, can make the government even less able to respond to the needs of its people. We saw that in Syria, and then in this year, uh, we saw the same sorts of things kind of happening in Zimbabwe, where there was a major drought kind of fueled by El Nino, and then also problems with the economy and people that were angry with the government and were protesting. So water certainly can play a role in sort of destabilizing certain situations that maybe would not have gotten so bad if there wasn't um, that sort of pressure. But then on the, the other side of that coin, we also saw water again used as a sort of weapon or a threat in times of conflict. And it also became major collateral in the fighting in Syria, as well as fighting in Iraq. And so I guess what I mean by water being used as a threat is an example we looked at was the agreement between India and Pakistan, the Indus Water 
Water Treaty, uh, which governs water sharing between those two countries. And uh, when there were military tensions and that's flared between them earlier this year. And uh, so the Indus Water Treaty was kind of held up as a, almost as a sort of hostage saying, you know, we might not cooperate with you if you don't, you know, kind of back off or that sort of thing. So, so water definitely does, it, it's really hard to separate from economy, from politics, from governance. We are seeing more and more of that kind of coming to light and people looking at it in that way. And then, of course, uh, one of the, the biggest pressures, you know, that we saw this last year was the fallout from the El Nino. So the El Nino actually ended earlier this year, but the effects of it kind of kept on going. And there were some of the worst droughts in decades, particularly in the Horn of Africa and in Southern Africa. At one point, there were about 50 million people that were needing food assistance. And that crisis is still ongoing. They're expecting droughts to get actually worse in uh, Kenya in the next six months. And as far as the United Nations is looking at humanitarian appeals that are really on record for next year. And of course, that's not just responding to droughts, but that's certainly part of it. And also refugee crisis and, and other humanitarian issues. But they're looking at about um, $22 billion next year that is going to be needed. So uh, it's something that we're definitely going to keep seeing in 2017. Thanks so much, Cody. Let me talk a little bit about what I learned this year and what I think is coming up in 2017, the kinds of things we'll be covering. So the role of financiers, bankers, big bankers, development banks, and some of the world's biggest banks in paying for infrastructure, mines, coal-fired power plants, hydropower projects, big farms, big pipelines, really, really came under terrific scrutiny, deep scrutiny by both communities, financial institutions, investors, and the environmental NGO and human rights NGO communities around the world. So in the United States, the battle over the Dakota Access Pipeline in North Dakota was heavily influenced by energy transfer partners' distress, significant distress that its financiers would begin to pull out because of the attention paid to the pipeline and because of a self-imposed deadline that they had negotiated with their contractors to use the pipeline that gave the contractors the authority to renegotiate their contracts how much they would pay energy transfer partners to move oil over the pipeline if it was completed. And if it's not completed by January 1st, 2017, they, those contractors can renegotiate their contracts. Those contracts were negotiated when oil was about $95 a barrel. Now it's about $47 a barrel, which means that energy transfer partners and its colleagues that built the pipeline face millions and millions of dollars in reduced revenue if and when the pipeline is built. And I found the similar levels of financial distress in South Africa this year over two big coal-fired power plants that South Africa is building that are tens of billions of dollars over budget, are draining the treasury of both the utility that's building it and the government, which owns the utility, ESCOM. We found those kinds of distresses in big farms in Africa where investors are pulling out of the major farm developments that they had. And we discovered it in Australia, where coal mines are proposed and where banks are withdrawing their funds from the coal mines. So that's one piece. And I think that that trend is very much going to continue and get, get more attention. And there will be changes in lending practices. And that's driven by the fact that the fossil fuel industry, which had been financed by major in the, uh, institutions, banks, and investment funds, 
uh, those same banks and investment funds have announced that they want to divest, that is, end their relationships with major fossil fuel projects and the value of, of all of the institutions that have made divestment announcements, they hold $5 trillion in funds to begin to change funding practices. I think we're going to see much more attention to the divestment. I think we're going to see much more attention to lending practices and banks pulling out of these big projects. The other thing that I was, I've been interested in is the maturity and the success the, that communities are having in posing major energy, mining, oil field, hydropower, and farm projects. That all over the world there's a rebellion at the grassroots around projects of scale, pro multi-billion dollar projects of scale. And in many cases, those projects are either being shut down or they're being prevented from, from completion. In the United States, of course, the Dakota Access Pipeline was an example. Last year, the Keystone XL Pipeline, which carried tar sands oil from Canada into the United States, was challenged and put aside uh, by President Obama, who withdrew the permit. And because of the price of oil at $45 a barrel, it's not even clear that, that under the Trump administration, even if the administration approved the permit to build the pipeline, that the Canadian pipeline developer will even choose to, to build it because by the time they start again, that pipeline could be $10 billion in its cost. So we're seeing, we're seeing all kinds of civic rebellion about big projects that affect water use. And then the last thing that, that I encountered, you know, personally in South Africa was to cover the, the consequences for communities that take on these big projects and how dangerous it is. So in South Africa, I covered the murder of a very prominent environmental activist working to prevent block the development of a titanium mine in the wild coastal beach. Uh, actually, on the beach, this struggle has been going on for about a decade, and Bazooka Radibi was murdered in March, just a few weeks after I had been there to report on that struggle, and I had met with Bazooka Radibi's colleagues, the, 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 the people that ran that campaign. We've seen it in Peru, where activists working on hydropower to provide energy for big mines in northern Peru were, were killed almost a year ago. We've seen it you know, in Honduras. We've seen it in Brazil. So there's a lot of, of, of hazard, personal hazard associated with taking on these big, big um, projects. But at the same time, we're not seeing the community activism decline or diminish as a result of the threats that people are under. So I think those, all of those three trends, I think, are, are going to become more intensive in 2017 as communities, nations, businesses begin to contend with the very changed environmental, ecological market conditions that are now unfolding around the world. And I'd, I'd point out too, Keith, that you had a story out a week or so ago that the, this resistance and pushback is not happening just in the places with the green pedigrees or the, the places that would be usual suspects stereotypically for this type of action. Yeah, I think that's right. Rural America is where the, the, these big projects are being built. And what I've learned living in northern Michigan and having traveled and reported extensively around rural America all over the United States is that, is that people in rural areas are much greener than the powers that be, you know, think they are. So all over the country here, I'm talking to you from Kentucky, there's a major pipeline fight over a pipeline, natural gas liquids pipeline here in, in, in central Kentucky last year. 
a different group of Kentucky communities and residents stopped coal to propose brand new natural gas pipeline. We've seen what's happening in North Dakota. We saw what's happening in Keystone XL. So, I mean, I, I, as I say, long gone is the era when major industrial companies could swoop into a rural, widely populated area and expect to be able to build at, at the scale that they want, that, that we report in both the United States and all over the world. One example after another from South Kobe Desert to the, to the, the you know, the, the high belt of South Africa to the rural areas of, of the Himalayas around hydropower development, um, Bangladesh, I mean, on and on and on, where, you know, mega projects of scale are being opposed. And so it leads me to the conclusion that scale is very significant in how people accept these projects and that there's been the need to be in the 21st century an adjustment in the size of projects being proposed. And that, of course, you know, invites brand new practices, brand new designs, brand new opportunities for how we're going to, you know, manage uh, the planet. Yeah. And likewise, uh, earlier this year, I listened to a couple dozen state of the state speeches, which are given by governors early in the year. And a striking number of them in the state of the state speeches mentioned water supply and water pollution as top state priorities. So Minnesota is doing a stream buffer rule to keep nitrates and other chemicals out of streams. Uh, Iowa is battling with a water pollution lawsuit from its capital city that's forcing farms there to take a look at how they are doing their farm practices. Florida had an algae outbreak in Lake Okeechobee and some coastal estuaries that's pushed water pollution to the top of the state agenda there. Wisconsin, Georgia, Florida, like places that have drought and water supply issues are not just the stereotypically dry Western states. It's kind of all across the U.S. now. Yeah, and if you look in the United States, you know, one of the stories we'll be looking at in 2017 is how the Trump administration is going to manage this because right now he's seeding his administration with leaders business leaders, political leaders that are avowedly and publicly opposing the progress that the United States has made around water and other and other environmental issues. And, and I, I just think that it has no chance of success. But that agenda has absolutely no chance of success because the places that are being challenged are the very places where he gained his his greatest support. And I think he's that he and the administration are ignoring how deeply embedded concerns about water, air, land, resources, species is in the American uh, public, regardless of party and regardless of where they live. I think one one way to sum up this past year is really that there's this feeling of momentum in you know, both with the community activism and just the attention being brought to water issues. There just seems to be this kind of, this momentum building behind uh, awareness and just the scale of the the problems that we're facing as, you know, as Flint brought up, as uh, the Dakota Access Pipeline protests are showing, as the, the droughts around the world have been showing. It's just kind of this sense of reaching a critical mass and, and something is having to be done and maybe you know that there are some solutions as Brett was pointing out that communities are, are looking to but maybe we don't have all the answers right now but there I definitely felt at least in the reporting I was doing that I was seeing this sort of you know people aren't ignoring it anymore it's definitely at the forefront I think I think that's a really good 
point, Cody, because I'm seeing it too. And I think we're seeing a pivot on fossil fuel use and development. China is reducing the amount of coal. Coal consumption globally is down for the second year in a row. In the United States, uh, natural gas and, and alternatives, you know, compete for new generating capacity. There's no new coal generating capacity in the country. Bangladesh is rejecting the 20 new coal plants that they proposed in 2010. India has announced very significant changes in its coal production and in its coal-fired energy development and pursuing very large renewable energy program. As I say, there's, you know, we talked about the momentum at the grassroots all over the world to defy and change the scale of the development. So I think it fits conditions, right? I mean, the earth is pushing back very, very hard now in storms and droughts and floods and quakes and it's affecting people's water supply. We've deferred a lot of maintenance. We're not, we, you know, we, we're not really well positioned in most parts of the world to deal with this. California is an exception. Parts of New England an exception. Panama is an exception. Northern Europe is an exception. But most of the world is out of position to do this and we're scrambling to position ourselves to be able to thrive and we're fighting practices of the past to do so. So we're, we're sweeping away the, you know, the development strategy that we pursued for 100 years that probably should have ended in 2010 or earlier, and we're pursuing something new. And as we grapple with, you know, these tremendous challenges and opportunities, well, I'm, by no means am I a pessimist about this. I think that, that we are seeing a really profound shift in recognition and how we respond. I, I agree with you, Cody. I think, I think that's a really good point. I think that about covers it. Good. Well, thank you guys. And um, look forward to more great reporting and recognition and helping, helping the world understand and translate what we're seeing out there, right? This has been another installment of Hot Spots H2O. Today's podcast is part of the year and water, rising costs, powerful civic opposition, new investment pressure, and stranded assets. Read more of Circle of Blue's frontline coverage of the fast-changing competition between water, food, and energy at circleofblue.org. Thanks for joining us. I'm J. Carl Ganter. <laughs>